It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each year, the Aspen Institute holds its annual Aspen Ideas Festival. Hundreds of inspired and provocative speakers and thousands of participants descend on the Institute's 40-acre campus, tucked near towering mountain peaks in Aspen, Colorado. We want you to be part of the festival, so we're featuring fascinating conversations with festival speakers throughout the event. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly show produced by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. The Aspen Ideas Festival is jam-packed with on-stage discussions touching on topics such as climate change, U.S. and world politics, psychology, technology, and health. For our series, we've asked a group of journalists to step off the stage and get behind the mic. These podcast takeover hosts handpicked festival speakers for discussions on a myriad of topics. Joshua Johnson is today's takeover host. You hear him every weekday morning on 1A, the national talk radio show produced by WAMU in Washington, D.C. It's the program that succeeded the Diane Rehm Show. Here's Johnson's takeover. Hey there, I'm Joshua Johnson, the host of 1A on NPR, and for the next half hour or so, I am taking over Aspen Ideas to Go. Thanks for checking out the podcast. We are in Aspen inside the busy registration tent here. No snow outside except at the very top of the very highest peaks. Burnt Mountain to the left, Larkspur Mountain to the right, and here in the middle in Aspen Meadows is Mr. Simon Sinek, a professional optimist, a <laughs> consultant about leadership and inspiring people to do the work that inspires them and inspires others. His latest book is called Together is Better. Simon Sinek, welcome to Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks very much, nice to be here. How's the festival so far? What you up to? I'm learning lots. Uh, it's kind of in, you know humbling. There's so many sort of remarkable people here. Um, like I can't believe they let me in. Um, <laughs> but I did a great thing today. I learned all about James Madison and, and how he came up with Article 1.8 of the Constitution. It was sort of fantastic. What so. did you learn about James Madison exactly? Well, basically the whole the whole limiting the, the expansion of federal powers, but limiting the, the, how the federal government works, were all because of things that were going on in the day. Um, the, the rebellion up in Massachusetts and the fact that the government was insolvent and so it was kind of amazing. The government, the federal government had no power to tax back then. Only the states did. So it's kind of just fantastic to get a little context in why our country is the way it is. Is this your first time here at the festival? It is. What, are you, what have you taken away from it so far other than a crash course in James Madison? As, other than a crash course in James Madison? Um, I'm a, look, I'm a huge fan of when um, people come together to, to discuss ideas in earnest and the level of conversation has been pretty high, which has been really great. And the quality of people who are coming here to speak has been astonishing. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, I love this kind of stuff. I, I think discourse is, is valuable. You came to prominence after a TED Talk that you gave in which you described a theory of leadership that you have called the Golden Circle. Mm -hmm. I think one of the recent stories you told that kind of exemplifies to me the Golden Circle had to do with speaking at a conference from Microsoft and they gave you a Zoom. To oh. me, that kind of exemplified that. Could you tell that story again, please? <laughs> sure. Um, so I spoke at an education summit for Apple, and I also spoke at an education summit for Microsoft it was a bunch of years ago. And uh, at the end of, uh, I, should, well, I should say, not before I even get to the end, the, during the um, Microsoft to uh, summit, I'd say the vast majority of the executives spent the vast majority of their time talking about how to beat Apple. Whereas at the Apple Summit, 100% of the executives spent 100% of their presentations talking about how to help teachers teach and how to help students learn. One was obsessed with their cause, the, others, the other one was obsessed with their competition. 
and it gives you a sense that companies that start with why really do, though they may, may study their competition tactically, they don't study their competition strategically. They, don't, they, don't, they won't change their long-term strategies because of the whims of their competition. Where I got the sense that Microsoft was trying to do anything to beat uh, Apple rather than focus on whatever its, its own causes, which was fascinating. Why is at the center of the golden circle? Why is at the center of the golden circle? The, uh, why is a, a sense of purpose, cause, or belief that go, that's, that's bigger than your company and certainly uh, bigger than any uh, bigger than profit? Profit is a result. Yes, you need profit. Profit is fuel to make the organization go. Without profit, you don't go, and it's what's the point of having a cause? Um, but you have to have all three levels. You have to have a sense of what you do, how you do it, and and why you do it. So what on the outside, how further in, and then why in, in the, the middle. Center. That's right. What are the products we sell, the services we offer? Everybody knows what that is. How is the, the, the things that we think make us different or stand out from the crowd, our unique selling proposition, whatever it is? And why is the purpose, cause, or belief that underlies the organization itself? Why does your company exist? You know, why should anybody care? You know, why did you get out of bed this morning? So one of the what's that they gave you was this Zoom. Zoom, yes. So, um, uh, so not to belabor the point, but when a company is crystal clear on its higher sense of purpose, cause, or belief, it actually has permission to go into different categories. So Apple, because it exists on this higher level, has permission to go into small electronics and music and all these other, all these other things, phones, right? Whereas Microsoft is perfectly qualified to make all those same products, um, but they don't have permission because they define themselves by what they do, not why they do it. So at the end of my talk, uh, Microsoft gave me a gift. They gave me the new Zune when it was a thing. And that was Microsoft's competition to the, the iPod. And I got to tell you, this was the most spectacular piece of technology I, I'd used. It was beautiful and elegant. It worked flawlessly. The user interface was, was simple and user-friendly. It was really spectacular. Um, it was a good product, but we both know it's gone nowhere and it didn't sell and it died. Um, I, was a, I was in the back of a taxi with a senior Apple executive sort of employee number 12 kind of guy, and as is my unfortunate habit, decided to stir the pot. <laughs> and so I said to the guy, you know, I was at Microsoft and they gave me their new Zune, and it is so much better than your iPod Touch. And he looked at me and he said, I have no doubt. Because, and the conversation was over. <laughs> that was it. That was it. Because the, an organization that's driven by a higher sense of purpose or cause understands sometimes you're ahead, sometimes you're behind. Sometimes your product is better, sometimes their product is better. The goal is not to win every battle, the goal is to outlast the competition. Are the companies, institutions, organizations, individuals who live their lives, do their work by the golden circle outliers in terms of their success? Are they the exception or are they really the rule in terms of who we consider most successful? Uh, I mean, it depends how you define success. The way I define it is long term. I mean, you know, you can run an org. People always say, I don't, I don't propose that the golden circle is a formula for success. What it seems to be is a naturally occurring pattern, a formula for lasting success. So you can, you can have a poorly run, poorly led organization and achieve whatever success, however you want to define it in the short term. That's not impressive to me. What's impressive to me is organizations that outlast, outcompete, outinnovate, um, command greater loyalty, amongst their employees and, in, and customers that command greater engagement amongst their people year after year after year after year after year after year. That to me is way more impressive. We're speaking to Simon Sinek, author and speaker. His books include Start With Why, How Great Leaders Inspire Everyone to Take Action, Leaders Eat Last, Why Some Teams Pull Together and Others Don't, 
Together is Better, and the forthcoming book called Find Your Why, a practical guide to discovering purpose for you and your team. Simon, how did you get into this line of work, of talking to people about leadership and inspiration? Yeah, it was an accident. I fell into it. Um, I had a marketing consultancy, um, and uh, after four years in business, I sort of fell out of love with my own work. And I was embarrassed by this because superficially my life was pretty good. You know, I was, I had good clients, we did good work, I made an okay living, and, uh, but I didn't want to wake up and do it again the next day, which is not a, it's not a nice feeling. And I kept that feeling to myself because I was embarrassed. So I, I was lying, hiding, and faking every day of my life, and almost all of my energy went into pretending that I was happier, more successful, and more in control than I felt, which is a dark place to be. And um, it wasn't until a very close friend of mine came to me and expressed concern for me that it gave me the courage to come clean and admit that I was struggling. And in so doing, that cathartic experience gave me the wherewithal to then try and find a solution. And I actually put my energy into finding a solution as opposed to pretending that I was okay. The way you describe this, you sound like a person who's kicked an addiction or who's battled depression. Um, you know, it was, it's probably the closest I ever came to if I wasn't depressed. I mean, I'd say that's true. You know, I was in an unhappy job doing something I didn't want to do and sort of kept it to myself. Did anything about the way that you ended up in that place yeah. inform the kind of advice you give to corporations, to leaders? Did that experience teach you anything about what became your line of work now? I think what it does is it gives me a, a, a level of credibility that, you know, this is not some highfalutin management theory that I talk about, and it's not some academic study that I did. You know, my work comes from, from personal experience. Um, it's deeply personal to me, and it's born out of real human problems. And so the fact that I can relate to people who may have gone through similar things is a, is a powerful thing. Um, and for those who haven't gone through it, that's fine too, because the work still stands, still stands on its own. Do you find any common bonds between the kinds of companies and organizations you deal with in terms of what gets in the way of them feeling inspired about the work that they do, of being on fire for doing what they're doing? Are companies and organizations kind of making the same few mistakes over and over? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it doesn't matter what industry I go in. It doesn't matter... Big companies, small companies, it's amazing how similar the problems are, and the problems are usually leadership problems. And when I say leadership problems, that means there's an, a people issue. And nine out of ten people issues are leadership issues. Um, so, let, I mean, let's take an exaggerated one. So, United Airlines, we all know what happened on United Airlines. I, that, as soon as that happened, I was like, I was like that's, a, that's a leadership problem. I actually don't blame that crew. I guarantee you that crew knew that what they were about to do was stupid. And they knew what the right thing to do was. But the problem was that um, the airline has a leadership environment where the leaders don't trust the people to make their own decisions and they're told to follow the rules no matter what. And those, that crew feared breaking the rules more than doing the right thing. And that's called a toxic leadership environment. Now, I can imagine certain companies saying, well, we have to set the rules very rigidly because our business is very litigious. It's a very tough regulatory environment. If we don't set sharp rules mm -hmm. and something goes wrong, stockholders will revolt. We could end up in court. The whole company could go to hell yeah. instantly. So this is, this, is the, this is the thing about trust, right? The rules are there for normal operation. They, the rules cannot consider every eventuality. And uh, we don't trust people to follow the rules. We trust people to know when to break them. Right? Why do we bother training people and hiring people that are trustworthy, quote unquote, if we don't trust them to know when to do the right thing? I'll tell you, I'll tell you a true story, right? So this is a, a story from the United States Air Force, and both these stories that I'm about to tell you are true. There was a, we have a simple rule in the United States Air Force, which is don't fly in Iranian airspace. Seems fair enough, right? right. So there's a story of a KC-135 tanker where the crew got lost, and they drifted into Iranian airspace. 
bad, right? There's another story of a KC-135 tanker that was hanging out, above, you know, um, uh, in, 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 fine, in perfectly safe airspace, and there was a jet that was in trouble. They were running out of gas, and the quickest way to get to that jet to save that guy was to just make a look, quick shortcut through Iranian airspace. And that crew made the decision to cut through Iranian airspace to get to that jet to give them gas, right? Knowing full well that they might get in trouble because they broke the rule. Now, on paper, both of those crews broke the same rule, and on paper they should both be punished the same way. But that's not what happened. Because the Air Force trusts their crews to know when is the right time to break a rule, and saving the life of somebody, it was worth breaking this rule. So one crew got punished because they were stupid and got lost, and one crew did not get punished. Because we want to encourage people to do the right thing when, when there's a human being on the other end of that. So in the case of United Airlines, when it's a safety issue, of course, of course, of course. But when it's something ridiculous like this, with a rule and you're going to hurt another human being, shame another human being, humiliate another human being, you know, then clearly we trust people to know that the rules do not consider this eventuality and it's okay to break the rule, even knowing that we might get punished for it. That's from, a, that's a, that was what you would call a strong leadership environment. From the books that you've written and the speeches that you've given, I know you spent a lot of time examining the military and yeah. the way that they deal with leadership. Yeah. What do you think is the common bond in that experience where a leader is able to engender trust in someone who's in their charge? Is it a particular kind of training? Is it a particular kind of messaging? Is it just about finding trustworthy people and putting them in an environment where they can make those kinds of command decisions? What, by and large, is, is the key? What's the procedure? So... Um there's an irony to this whole thing of trustworthy people. Most people are trustworthy. It's actually a very, 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 very small percentage of people who are, un are untrustworthy. If you put good people in a bad environment, those people will do bad things. If you take people who you consider untrustworthy, or I consider untrustworthy, and we put them in a good environment, they can turn their lives around and become remarkable, productive members of society. In other words, it's, it's rarely the people, it's always the environment. And so um, good leaders understand that the environment they create will directly influence the behavior of the people. When we create a trusting environment, people will act trustworthy. When we create a non-trusting environment, people will act non-trustworthy. So here's a, here's a real life example. So um, one of our major league, uh, not major league, I was going to say uh, uh, national football league teams, uh, 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 um, a professional football team, I'll leave, I'll leave the team name out, mm -hmm. but this is a true story. <laughs> In their training facility, they built the mother of all juice bars. I mean, like, the best juice bar that you could get with the freshest vegetables, the freshest fruits, you name it, right? And they had a simple rule, players only. They put it right in the, in the, in the, in the, in the space, but it was players only. And they had a huge problem with people at night stealing stuff. They would steal, you know, fruit and vegetables. People would steal stuff, right? Then they changed the rule. They said anybody can go have a, a juice whenever they wanted. And guess what? The theft disappeared. Because when we, when, when we treat people like they're less than, they act less than. When we treat people like equals and normals and show respect, they act with respect. And we see this playing out in grander form, you know, if you want to exaggerate it all. Think about in, in, in the Middle East. You know, acts of violence are committed in the name of humiliation. Or if we go into an inner city, you know, acts of violence are committed beca because of disrespect. In fact, even some of the tensions we have between uh, police and, and, uh, and uh, inner city communities um, is very often said, if you dig down deeper, lack of respect. Because right. I've hung out with cops who show respect, and they've actually been thanked when they've made an arrest. Because people who are breaking the law know they're breaking the law. It doesn't mean they have to be treated with disrespect, you know? 
So I think that good leaders understand this. They understand that what their job is is actually profoundly a human job, and they commit to the study of that human job. They're students of leadership. One group of people who doesn't get a whole lot of respect these days that you've had a lot to say about lately is millennials. There was a a couple of presentations you've given about some of the social roots for why the kids are doing what they're doing that really went viral and I think kind of got under people's skin because in my view yeah. it took away some of it took the wind out of that out of those sails and saying oh those kids these days you don't understand when I was a kid we didn't have all this crazy yeah, social uphill, media and uphill in the snow both ways both, yeah. and I was grateful and you yeah. basically just <laughs> shot that all to hell yeah it sounds like you made the case that millennials were dealt a bad hand yeah. and that the adults around them suck at walking them through it? Well, my case is one of empathy, right? Which is um, to exercise empathy. Every single generation is affected by the, the events of the day during their, when they're coming of age. So our grandparents, um, who grew up during the Depression or the Second World War, are miserly and frugal. That's not because there's some character flaw. It's because they grew up during the, the depression, depression and, exactly. the, and the world and during rations. Right, like, right. Like, you know, that's why. And like the baby boomers who, who came of age during the Vietnam War and Richard Nixon tend to be a little more distrustful of authority figures. Go figure. Right. Right. So all I'm simply saying is there's a young generation called that we have labeled millennials because they're the first generation to come of age at the turn of the century during the millennium, um, the turn of millennium even. And... Um, and we have to consider the events of the day that will affect their, out, their view of the world um, uh, when they grow up. This is the first generation that grew up with social media, cell phones, uh, uh, ubiquitous in their lives. Um, they also grew up subject to different kinds of parenting strategies than previous generations. And you have to consider these in, in their worldview. You mean the whole everyone gets a trophy thing? Yeah, well that, that, that's one of the things. But yeah, that's part of it. Or like if you got in trouble in school, it used to be that you, you come and be like, what'd you do now? Where now it's like, what's wrong with your school? What, like there's a problem with your teacher. Right? Like there's a lack of accountability in, for some, the way that some parents raise their kids. And you can trace it back as to why they raise their kids that way, but that's not important. The, the point is, all I was simply saying is, instead of complaining and labeling about an entire generation, they're entitled, right? And, and just as an aside, um, yes, absolutely every single generation of, of the older always criticizes the younger. Right. However, if you look at the research, there's always the same kinds of words used. They want to change everything. Why, you know, like, but the, the, the word uh, entitled was actually a new one that actually is reserved for this generation. And my whole point is, before we label them and judge them, let us consider let us exercise empathy and, and consider where they came from, and maybe everything will be more easily explained. You have that, doesn't, that doesn't excuse it. Right. That doesn't excuse the behavior. It explains the behavior. You've also talked about the impact of social media in terms of its biochemical effect. A number of your presentations have had to do with things like dopamine yeah. and the effect of social media on the dopamine, on the neurotransmitter yeah. levels. This is getting a little deep. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so... Yeah, you can trace most of our behaviors back to our brain chemistry and neuroscience. Um, there's uh, a chemical in our body called dopamine, which uh, is responsible for the feeling that we get when we find something we're looking for or we accomplish something we set out to accomplish. So that thrill you get when you win the game or the excitement you get when you find something you've been looking for, like your keys or scavenger hunts. That's why kids love scavenger hunts because you're like, oh, there it is, right? right? It's, like, it's why we like games. Yes. Gamification is all about the promotion of dopamine, right. gambling, all of this stuff. Dopamine feels good and it's a lot of fun. We know, the science on this is pretty clear, that we get a dopamine hit um, from social media and our cell phones. So every time our phones go bing, buzz, flash, or beep, 
feels good. Like we feel loved, right? And we check how many likes we get, we check how many followers we get, all this kind of stuff. It makes us feel good about ourselves. We get these hits of dopamine. Even that thing where if you're having a bad day, you're lonely, you just start going, hi, yeah, what's exactly. everybody doing? Exactly. Just to see if someone responds. That's right. When you're having a bad day, you send out 10 texts like, hi, 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 hi. <laughs> and the first one responds back, makes you feel good, right? So that feeling is, is comes from this chemical called dopamine in our bodies, which is when it's, when it's released for healthy reasons is perfectly fine. However, dopamine can be, when left unbalanced, highly, highly, highly addictive. So almost all addictions are actually dopamine-based addictions. Alcoholism, gambling addictions, uh, drug addictions, almost all addictions are, are dopamine-based addictions, which means that people who spend uh, an excessive amount of time on, this is all age groups, on, um, on their phones or on social media can actually... Um, can actually become addicted to them. Like it's it's when we say you're addicted to your phone, it's not an exaggeration. It's actually biologically accurate. I imagine that that can be comforting to someone who's wondering why this happens, and also really disheartening to like a boss, a parent who's got to deal with these addicted kids. How do you how do you and, compete with? Well, that? there's plenty of addicted adults too. There's plenty of parents who are sitting at the dinner table with their phones, right? Where their kids, you know, you know. So so then, if you're trying to you, lead millennials or raise them, how do you deal with that? You treat it. I hate to say it, but you treat it like addiction. Um, uh, there's many ways to do it. So one of the reasons an alcoholic gets rid of all of the alcohol in their house um, is because you can't trust willpower. Willpower is just not strong enough, right? Um, so when we allow people to have their phones at all times, you, you can't trust that they have the willpower not to check it, and, or at least not have the feeling of the, the you know sort of sort of <laughs> scratching your leg, you know, like I wonder what's the, on what, Instagram what's, what's right it? now. Right. So yeah. so my rule is no phones allowed in conference rooms. Just ban them. No phones in conference rooms. And remarkable things happen. We've done it with plenty of companies we've worked with, and we've seen the results. A, meetings are more efficient. They accomplish more. But what I'm more interested in is that the relationships in those meetings start to build because you have small talk. Because instead of everybody sitting on their phone while you're waiting for the meeting to start because Bob's a little late, um, you talk. How was your weekend? How are your kids? I heard your dad was in the hospital. You know, oh my God, yeah, thanks, he's much better right now. And over the course of time, you're actually getting to know each other a bit more and you're building trusted relationships. And one of the struggles that, one of the reasons so many people don't love their jobs, and this is particularly true of our younger generation who are going from job to job to job trying to find where they fit, um, is they never really feel like they belong. They never really feel a part of the community. I don't blame entirely millennials, I blame the leadership environment that allows for uh, these kinds of things to happen where kids aren't given the opportunity to feel like they belong. Another manifestation of that kind of bouncing And that, from, by the way, yeah. it, and that applies to all age groups, not just millennials. Millennials are more vocal about it, but you know, older generations suffer in silence. Everybody should feel happy at work. Another kind of manifestation of that bouncing around that you talk about that's particularly heartbreaking has to do with relationships, especially yeah. caring relationships between young people. And you assert that because of the kind of instant gratification, bouncing around culture that we have, it makes it harder for millennials in particular to form deep lasting friendships, loving relationships, etc. What do you think is the key to break through that? So um, millennials grew up, uh, the first generation to grow up with um, easy access to a lot of things and a lot of instant gratification. So if you want to watch a movie, you don't need to check movie times, you just stream it whenever you want to watch it. You know, you can binge watch an entire TV season in a weekend. You don't have to wait week to week to week. You want to go on a date, just swipe right. Super easy, mm. you know. Uh, you want to buy something, go on Amazon. It shows up the next day. Like, the problem is that same mentality has, seems to have also been applied to aspects of their lives and careers. So finding love or job satisfaction 
um, you find that there's a, a, also an increased impatience. I've talked to so many wonderful, smart, talented, ambitious, just spectacular young, young people in the workforce, and I talk to them, they go, how's work? They go like, yeah, I think I'm gonna quit. I'm like, what's the, what's the matter? They're like, yeah, I just don't think this is for me. I'm like, you know you've been here four months, right? They're like, yeah, I know, but it's not for me. Like, how do you, how do you, how do you know, you know? I mean, unless your boss is particularly abusive, which is not the case in, in the ones that I talk to, there's, there's no sense of like, some of these things take time to, to gestate. Um, so, so the problem is it's being applied to relationships as well. Too many um, young people are treating job fulfillment and relationships like it's a scavenger hunt. Like they'll look under a rock and be like, here it is, I found love. Here it is, I found the job I love. You can't find the job you love. You can't find love even. Like you find somebody who shares your values and you think would take care of you and, and commit to you and you work hard every single day to stay in love. You don't, it's not something that once you're there you just give up. And work is the same way. You find a place that shares your values, that views you as a human being, wants to raise you and help you build your confidence and do well in your career. And you work very, very hard today to, every day to contribute to that culture and, and, and enjoy, the, enjoy the love of, of the job. Suppose I'm a leader listening to this, leader of some kind of organization, and mm -hmm. I hear you talking and I say, wow, you're right. I, I am a terrible leader. <laughs> I just, you have, I have sinned and I fully repent. Either that or they're saying I'm an idiot. It's, it, one, it's one or the other. One or the other. But <laughs> if they're saying that you're right and they're a mess yeah. and they want to improve, where do you start? What's step one to being a better leader? So you, 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 you said it. Step one to being a better leader is you have to want to be a leader. Leadership is a choice, not a rank. It's, a, it's not about being in charge. It's about taking care of those in our charge. And the problem is, is when people get promoted, you know, we give, so, we give people tons and tons of training how to do their jobs, you know? And if they're good at their jobs, they'll get promoted. And eventually they'll get promoted to a position where they're now responsible for the people who do the job they used to do, but they don't teach us how to do that. They don't teach leadership. So number one is you have to uh, want to be a leader. And you have to understand that once you're in a leadership position, you're no longer responsible for the results. You're now responsible for the people who are responsible for the results. And that's a different skill set, right? And the reason we get managers and not leaders is because we don't show people how to lead, how, how, you, how you help people work at their natural best. So number one is the choice that I want to be a leader. And number two is you become a student of leadership. And all the best leaders I know, um, and some people who are, who, have, who are you know tremendous, who have achieved tremendous things, none of them consider themselves experts. They all consider themselves students. They talk about the subject with peers, with superiors, with more junior people a lot. They read books, they watch TED Talks, they watch talks from Aspen uh, Ideas Festival, whatever it is, they're constantly in learning mode to be a better leader. Just like when you become a parent. You ask your own parents, you ask your friends what they're doing with their kids, you read books. You, you commit yourself to, the, to becoming student of the discipline. One of the things that you write about in Leaders Eat Last is that kind of leadership, why yeah. the title is called Leaders Eat Last, and yeah. it has to do with another example from the military. Could yeah. you briefly explain that? Sure, um, so the, the title came from a conversation that I had with, when I was doing research for the book, I did some research with the Marine Corps, and I met with um, a three-star general who was in charge of all Marine Corps training, officer and enlisted, and at some point I asked him in our conversation, what makes the Marines so good at what they do? Because even the rest of the military will acknowledge the Marines are sort of a cut above, right? I said, what, 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 what makes the Marines so good at what they do? And without thinking, he, say, he, let, he said to me, officers eat last. And if you visit any chow hall in any Marine base anywhere in the world, uh, at chow time, you will see that they will, rang up, uh, they will line up in rank order. The most junior Marine eats first, and the most senior Marine eats last. It's not in any rule book. No order is given. 
no, nobody told them they had to do it that way. It's one of the funny ways in which their view of leadership shows up in daily life, which is they view leadership not as a rank, but as a responsibility, a responsibility of those in your charge. And so just like you feed your children before you feed yourself, so too will uh, uh, an officer feed uh, his or her uh, Marines before they feed themselves. Before I let you go, you talk a lot about how other people can be better leaders, how they can follow the things that inspire them, how they can continue to grow into what they're doing. What's next for you? What do you want to grow into next? Um, I, maybe an adult, that would probably be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> if you figure out how it's done. I'm working would, on it. Would it's you not, please let me know? <laughs> it's kind of like two step forwards, 12 steps back. But you don't want to do that. I, I, no, I, not I, really. No, I, don't, I don't want to ever grow. That's you don't want to grow. No. I, I remember one of your speeches, you confirmed that you had dressed up as Superman at Comic-Con, which I think is awesome. And Spider-Man and Snake Eyes and exactly. Spider-Man again. And exactly. Yeah, yeah. How, well, so, so <laughs> hopefully not losing that sense of fun. No, no. I, I, I'm a big kid, um, and I can't, I can't help it. I have the fashion sense of a 16-year-old anyway. Um, I, I'm writing another book right now. I'm writing a book called The Infinite Game, which is um, applying game theory to how organizations function in the real world. Um, the amazing thing is there are rules of games. As soon as you have at least two competitors, you're in a game, right? Business has many competitors, some, but at least two. Politics has at least two. As, as soon as you have at least two competitors, you're in a game, which means the rules of game theory apply. And what I've been learning is that... Um, um, most organizations have no clue of the game they're in, which means they have no idea of the rules of the game, which means the vast majority of organizations are playing by the wrong rules, hmm. which means most organizations are heading towards zero. I find this so fascinating. I think this is so cool that simply by understanding the rules of the game, you can profoundly uh, positively impact um, your success over the long term. And most, most organizations are blind to it. So I, I, I so profoundly changed my view of how I function in the world, so I'm I'm, as I do with all my work, which is when I find something that, I, that changes my life, I, I write about it. Well, we'll keep an eye out for the new book, The Infinite Game, by Simon Sinek, author, speaker, whose other books include Leaders Eat Last, Start With Why, and Together Is Better. And Find Your Why, which comes out in September. And Find Your Why, which comes out in September. Simon Sinek, thanks for talking to us. Thanks for having me. This is Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Joshua Johnson from NPR's 1A. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to our podcast takeover series at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, or find us on SiriusXM's Insight Channel. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin, Eliza Costas, and me. Audio engineering by Corby Anderson and SiriusXM. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.